Let's open our Bibles to the fifth chapter of the sacred history. And that's the book of Acts. Acts chapter 5. It's been a week or two since we were in the book of Acts. And we were last there in Acts chapter 4. We covered that chapter and I told you that my favorite words, I believe from the whole book of Acts, were in chapter 4, the 33rd verse, where it says that great grace was upon them all. Great grace was upon them all. And that's my prayer for this assembly, and I hope that it's your prayer for us also, that not just grace would be upon some, but great grace would be upon us all. That God's presence that gives grace would be upon us all, and that in an abundant measure. And we saw that in chapter 4. But now, and the timing of this chapter is by the blessing of God, so I hope that you're able to see what we immediately move into in the fifth chapter of Acts, which is the sacred history of his true church. And that's the church at Jerusalem, and the work and the acts of the apostles as they labored in that church first, and then moved out from that church into Judea, and then Samaria, and then the uttermost parts of the earth. But let's come now to chapter 5, and I want to read to you the first 11 verses. But a certain man named Ananias, with Sapphira his wife, sold a possession, and kept back part of the price, his wife also being privy to it, and brought a certain part, and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost, and to keep back part of the price of the land? Whiles it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down, and gave up the ghost. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. And the young men arose, wound him up, and carried him out, and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after, when his wife not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether ye sold the land for so much. And she said, Yea, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door, and shall carry thee out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet, and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in, and found her dead, and, carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these things. Great grace was upon them all. Such great grace that we read in verses 31 through 37, the last part of chapter 4, that there was no one that lacked in the church at Jerusalem, Because anyone that possessed anything sold those possessions, brought the proceeds, laid it at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made to every man according as every man had need. A fantastic spirit of charity had gripped this church with the great grace of God that was upon them. And we have a particular instance given to us in the last few verses of chapter 4 about a man named Joseph, who the apostles surnamed Barnabas, who would eventually be an apostle companion of the apostle Paul. He sold land, it tells us where, and he was of the, of the country of Cyprus. He had land, he sold it, he brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And we're given a very specific example of a man by name that had great grace upon him, that showed this great grace by willing, by being willing to part with his possessions to give to others. It is true that the true test of your interest in a thing is what you'll pay for it. It's easy to stand or sit in an assembly 
and sing, Oh, how I love Jesus. But when it comes to paying, either financially or in time, dedicated to those that are Jesus Christ in the assembly, you'll find out how much you love him. And we will find out how much you love him. And he finds out how much you love him. Because there's a cost attached with anything of value. If you love something, you'll be willing to pay. Right. And that is that has been shown to us in chapter 2 and chapter 4. The saints under the influence of the Holy Ghost were not selfish at all. They freely and willingly gave up their goods for their brethren. And we had that in chapter 4. But I want you to notice that chapter 5 begins with a but. Though in chapter 4, great grace was upon them all. But there were some exceptions. You say, well, how does the, how can the, the apostle use the word all if there was an exception? Because that's how the word all is used throughout the Bible. The general rule was that great grace was upon them, but there was an exception. The great grace was not upon these two. God allowed these two. God permitted, purposed, and planned these two to conspire together to lie to the early church and to the apostles and to make a pretense of giving a great gift, but not to give it all. Ananias and Sapphira had extra property, and they sold it. And instead of bringing the full sales price of that property, they only laid down a portion of it at the apostles' feet. Now, just common natural reasoning would tell us that they laid down most of it. Because if they hadn't laid down most of it, then it wouldn't have appeared to have been the price of the property. You don't sell a piece of real estate, then bring a $20 bill. They brought a large enough sum that it appeared that they had were bringing the whole amount. But they had kept back a certain portion for themselves. And their sin was not keeping back a certain portion for themselves. Right. Their sin was their public pretense at being something they weren't. And that was that they were bringing the whole thing just like Barnabas had brought the whole amount. They conspired to keep back part for themselves. Now there's a problem when you do that with the apostles. Amen. The apostles had the measure of the Holy Ghost like no others. Right. They had the gift of discernment of spirits, and we're going to see that throughout the book of Acts. The apostle Peter had the gift that Jesus Christ had, and that was able to discern the thoughts and intents of someone's heart by the gift of Christ. These were mighty men. Though Peter and Andrew and James and John were only fishermen, and Matthew was a publican tax collector, and the others had no noble calling in life to speak of, they had the gift of the Holy Ghost. And so when Ananias and Sapphira presumed to come in here in Acts chapter 5, God's going to make a demonstration to lift up the office of apostle where it belongs so that these 12 men could go out into the world and people listened. You know, our we have an advertisement on television. I haven't seen it in a long time. Yes, I'm bragging. It's still been the Super Bowl, brethren, and I'm very thankful to God for His mercy toward me. Because it's only by His grace. I haven't wasted any time in front of that glowing evangelistic tool of the devil since the Super Bowl. But they say when E.F. Hutton speaks, people listen. Well, that's, you know, that's not saying very much. But what we have here in Acts chapter 5 is God lifting up his apostles so that when they spoke, men listened. Because as we read in the 11th verse, the summary of this little story here in Acts 5 is great fear came upon the church. Great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. This helped push along the early ministry of the apostles. Because how in the world could uneducated, ignorant fishermen command the attention of audiences unless God gave them a special sign and evidence that they were his men? Right. No one would listen to them. 
you bring four fishermen into town and they stand in a coliseum and begin speaking, no one is going to attend. But when those four fishermen are able to raise the dead or kill the living, men, listen, great fear came upon all the church. Peter, in verse 3, says to Ananias, Why hath Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? Now, let's just think about that for a minute. Lying to the Holy Ghost. Does that mean that Ananias was lying to the Holy Spirit within himself? No. He, no man would presume that, and that's just a ridiculous thought. The, 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 lie, the lie was the outward action. Ananias wasn't lying. He knew he was keeping back part of the price to himself. But he was making a show to the church and making a show to the apostles that was a lie. And Satan filled his heart with that idea. Now, I want you to think about that in light of last Sunday morning's preaching. Satan is under the control of God Almighty as much as a marionette is under the control of those manipulating its strings. Satan doesn't do a thing in this universe without God's complete permission. He cannot move. He cannot do anything without God purposing and allowing him to do that. We see, we saw in the book of Job, and we, we know the book of Job so well, that Satan could not move on Job without God allowing him to move. The first stage was that Job was hedged in by a hedge that God had put around him that didn't let Satan get near him. And Satan figured that was the only reason that Job feared God. Because that God blessed everything Job did. Well, the Lord took the hedge down, let Satan come in and destroy everything Job had. Job still didn't curse God. So then God took, took off the limitation that Satan couldn't touch the body of Job. And he put the limitation, you just can't kill him. But Satan tried to destroy Job's physical well-being by giving him sore boils from the crown of his head to the sole of his feet. There's the various stages of Satan wanting Job. But God limiting Satan at each step as to what he could do. God purposed to allow Satan into the church of Jerusalem. There is no other way that Satan entered the church of Jerusalem and entered two people's hearts without God allowing it and purposing it. And he was going to get glory out of it for his own holy and wise ends. And those ends are pretty obvious. The apostles are going to have a reputation that they're not to be messed with. And we're going to see that as soon as we get past that 11th verse. I'll show it to you in just a moment. That's exactly why it happened. But notice, for God to accomplish something, great grace wasn't upon every single one. God withheld grace and allowed Satan to enter two individuals, Ananias and Sapphira. And brethren, a verse like this, and what I'm telling you right now from God's Word, is not for us to look at anyone else, not for us to worry about anyone else, except for us to understand why things happen. But for us to beg God daily... Unite my heart to fear thy name. Our hearts are not united. We have a new man and an old man within us. And that old man wants to be fearful. That old man wants to worry. That old man wants to hate. That old man wants to have take vengeance. That old man loves the world. That old man is not content. And we want our hearts united. And we need to pray for that. Because if we don't pray for it and God doesn't grant us grace, we'll be lost just like these two. I want to say something about Ananias and Sapphira. Were they members of the right church? Were they living in sin without being married? No. They had a Christian marriage. They They had a Jewish marriage. They were married. They were in the right church. Did they come to the right men? Did they bring a gift? Did they bring a large gift? It would have to be large enough to appear to be the sale price of a piece of property. Real estate. Did they do all those things? And yet, God, 
when he looked into their hearts, saw that they were making a pretense. Let's presume, just for the sake of your minds, they gave 90% of the sale price. They kept back 10% for themselves. But that minor amount they kept back was a pretense, and they were playing with God and with His church. And what did they suffer as a result of that? Death. Death. There are so many that think that God does not care about the details. That God doesn't, as long as you're making an effort, you know, you can get an A for effort. That is not the way the Lord works. He looks into our hearts and sees what our intent is there and what we're trying to do, and He judges us accordingly. And these people, though they gave a great gift, they brought it right down to the apostles' feet, and they were members of the right church, and they had a good marriage. They had conspired together. They were in agreement on it. God judged them by taking their lives. And there ought to be holy fear in us when we consider the worship of God that when we come in here, we better have united hearts. Their hearts were not united. They had a desire to fear the Lord and to be Christians, and they had a desire to make a pretense that they were something that they were not. And because of that divided heart, God slew them. Now, why are we all here this morning? We believe we're at the right church. We're going to bring our gifts, whether those gifts are financial or those gifts are singing or those gifts are fellowship, those gifts are affection and love toward one another. Are our hearts united in the fear of God? Because if they're not, that gives a place for the devil. The devil is looking for someone with ulterior motives that is not, that, 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 that does not have a united heart that he can take advantage of a desire that they have to make a pretense. And that's giving place to the devil. And Satan can then take you and use you. We must humble ourselves before we ever get here. I've taught you that on Saturdays we ought to be making preparation for coming into the Lord's house. Preparing our hearts. That our hearts have one focus. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Nothing else. I'm not trying to keep up some reputation. I'm there to worship the Lord. I'm not there to make a pretense. I'm there to worship the Lord. And we need to confess every false motive that we have ever had coming into an assembly. God killed these two. Now we live in such an effeminate generation that we can't even imagine an event like this occurring. We can't even, I, I could tell you about it. You can read about it, but you can't imagine it because we live so far removed from the true fear of God. A man walked into an assembly or into a meeting where the apostles were and laid a gift at their feet. The apostles all stood there. And there was simply a short exchange by Peter asking him some rhetorical questions, and the man fell down dead. And the young men, which we have a number of in here, got up, came up front with a tablecloth off the back table, rolled his body up in it, carried it out, and dumped it in the church cemetery. And three hours later, a woman came in. And Peter said, Sapphira, was $13,500 the amount you sold the property for? Yes, it is, Peter. She fell down dead. The young men were standing at the door waiting for her. And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. I can say the words, but you still don't see it. That's the God we're worshiping, though. We have a song in our other hymnals, number 434. He's the same today as he was then. It is the same God. When I read over in Hebrews chapter 12 and verses 29 and 30, that let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. There is no godly fear when you come into his presence and make a pretense. You live one way during the week, but try to give a show here on Sunday that you love him. That is playing with the Lord that is to be worshipped with reverence and godly fear. And it goes on to say, for our God is a consuming fire. Hebrews chapter 12. 
Let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. Let us have grace. Great grace was upon them all. We need grace in order to serve the Lord acceptably. If he withdraws any grace and allows Satan to fill our heart with hypocrisy or wickedness, we stand in the face of the same God that killed Ananias and Sapphira, and may the Lord have mercy on us. But yet, if we're going to play with him, he shouldn't. We should humble ourselves and never come to that place where we would play before the Lord God Almighty. Great fear came on all them that heard these things. Let me point out from here that no man was required to sell all of his possessions and give it all to the church. Some will go into Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, and teach communism. You can't find communism taught in the Bible. What you find is the Spirit of God coming upon a group of people that love one another enough that if they had extra and they saw someone that didn't have enough, they sold their extra to give to those that didn't have enough. But it was motivated by the Spirit of God, not by a rule or a law or an ordinance. Because notice what Peter says in verse 4. Whiles it remained, while, when you had that piece of real estate, Ananias, was it not thine own? Amen. Now if there was some law of compulsion that we have to sell all our goods to make everyone equal, then it wouldn't have been Ananias' own. It would have been the church's. And then Peter goes on to say, And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? When you sold that for 15000 and you kept back 1500 for you and your wife, wasn't that 15000 in your own power? Here's Peter teaching us that he wasn't under compulsion. He was giving a gift. Which There's, there's two points here. Number one, the, the, the New Testament of Jesus Christ does not require us to sell everything we've had to give away to the poor. That's the point I'm making right now, but I also want you to see that he did give a great gift that he didn't have to give. And see, we think that when we do some things for one another that we're quite noble. Now let's just be, let's just be very realistic here. There were four brothers on a project the last couple of days, and most of the rest of the brothers in this church made it down to Michael Lutman's property yesterday. You made it down to Michael Lutman's property, you worked hard while you were there, you were kind to the brothers you encountered while you were there. You were here on time for the assembly this morning. You put something in the box after the assembly's over. You're going to be back tonight. You're going to get up and say something from the pulpit to bless the Lord. And you're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. And you're going to be friendly and love everyone that's here. And yet, your heart is still holding on to something in the way of sin. We need to humble ourselves and examine ourselves and make sure that it's not true. Because that show means nothing to the Lord. They fell down dead. He didn't care about the 13,500 that was at the apostles' feet. They fell down dead. This is a sober God that we're dealing with. And we should love Him and fear before Him. And examine our souls that we are not playing the hypocrite. Let's move on past Ananias and Sapphira and come to verse 12. They lied, they, they lied to the Holy Ghost because where was the Holy Ghost in the church? Primarily in those apostles. And they came and stood before those apostles and lied. And you didn't lie to the Holy Ghost because Peter knew instantly that they were lying. But now we come to that. I want to read that 11th verse again. Great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. That this rumor of what took place in that service spread out so that others that were even outside the church, there was fear upon them as they realized there was something very special and unique going on in Jerusalem at the hands of these apostles. That someone had tried to come in and give a great gift, and that the apostles knew that they had kept back a portion of it. I have no discernment like that. Are you going to say, I'm lucky? I hope there's nothing to discern except a heart that's united to fear his name. Let's look further at these apostles. What's the book of Acts called Acts for? Because it's the 
Acts of the Apostles. And so it's a book that lifts up the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, who were the foundation of the New Testament church, Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Verse 12, I'm going to read to verse 16. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. And of the rest durst no man join himself to them, but the people magnified them. And believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and women, insomuch that they brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks, and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed every one. May the Lord magnify his apostles to us here for a few minutes. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. I want to emphasize again that what the apostles did, they demonstrated the power of God. It was not like these healing crusades that are on television. When someone comes up and says that they have kidney stones and some imposter pretending to be an apostle blows on them and they fall into someone's arms and then he says their kidney stones are gone, there has been no sign or wonder performed. A sign Listen, we have children that can figure this out. Is a sign something you can see? Is a stop? Can you see a stop sign? Or do they just hope that you might think that there should be a stop sign there? It's called a sign and a wonder. The apostles didn't cure kidney stones. They raised men off of beds where they had never walked for as long as they'd been alive. That is why they were called signs and wonders. There's no wonder if I tell you right now that I prayed for you last night and your kidney stones are gone. You might not even know you had any. And no one else knows that they're gone. It's all a charade. It was never a charade with the apostles. They brought sick folks on beds and couches. And if Peter just walked by them, his shadow passing on their bodies, they were healed. It was a sign. You saw it. It was a demonstration of the power of God. There was no skepticism. Oh, I don't know that they were that sick. You know, there were people that were dead. Peter's going to raise a woman here in just a couple chapters from the dead. You can't play games with a dead person. And I haven't seen a crusade yet on television where they shot the people in the front row and then raised them back to life. Now, if they did that, I'd watch it for another minute. It'd be exciting, but they don't do that. They're always healing things that no one can see. You've had an infection in your inner ear for the last couple of years, haven't you? I guess I have. You know, well, that inner ear infection is healed. The apostles didn't do that. They were mighty signs and wonders wrought among the people. They were out there visibly with the people where there were relatives that knew the situation of those that were being healed. And so it was magnifying these men that had mighty power. Jesus had said when he was here on earth with with his apostles, when they were marveling once at his works, he said, greater works than these you are going to do. And they did. Where do we read about Jesus healing someone with his shadow? The apostle Paul could mail out hankies. And if that hanky arrived by FedEx at your door, you were healed. They had mighty power, those apostles did. And the reason was, they were witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ. They saw him while he was alive. They saw him die on the cross of Calvary. They saw him buried. And they saw him risen from the dead. And they ate with him after he was risen from the dead. They were special witnesses chosen by God. And to confirm their testimony, that indeed, Jesus Christ was risen from the dead, they could perform signs and wonders. And these signs and wonders lasted for 40 years. They did not last longer. By 70 A.D., all signs and wonders from God had left this earth. Anything since then is a fraud. Or by the power of another spirit that is able 
to do minor signs and wonders. Because all those signs and wonders for was to establish the credibility of 12 men who had no credibility. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. And brethren, I want you to notice something again. They were all with one accord in Solomon's porch. They were, how were they there? One accord. It is unity in the body of Jesus Christ that is so important for us to have great grace upon us as a church and upon the ministry. I want to jump a couple of verses because I want to come down and finish the uh, the part of, there's, there's a parentheses there. You know what that means. You can jump the parentheses without affecting the sense of the sentences. We come down to 15 and 16 that uh, these, these apostles were so great in their power and the signs and wonders were so much demonstrating the power of God that people brought forth the sick into the streets and laid them on beds and couches that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. The hospitals were emptying out. Now, I've never seen someone go into a city. They always go to the Colosseum. They don't go to the hospital. But when, when the apostles were there, all the sick were being brought out of the houses and wherever they were being held. Right. And verse 16 tells us, There came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks, and them which were vexed with unclean spirits. These apostles were able to heal the physically infirmed and the spiritually possessed. They could do both. And they were healed, every one. They were healed, every one. Not just the easy ones. Not just the plants that had been paid before the crusade began that were supposed to come forward when the uh, so-called healer asked for those that were sick to come forward. Have there ever been plants? Oh, yes. 60 minutes in 2020 have documented these things many times. But these weren't just the easy ones, and these just weren't the plants. They healed every one. No matter what you brought to the apostles, they healed them. And so their credibility was just rising. They could heal everyone. Possessed of devils. Lame from your mother's womb. Heal them. Even with a shadow. And here's the effect. Verse 13. And of the rest, durst no man join himself to them. Now those are obscure little words, unless you really look at the context. And what it means is, that of the rest of that church, no one tried to pretend that they were an apostle. The twelve apostles were separate by themselves with the magnificent power that God had given them, and no one tried to join them. You know, we've got churches today claiming to still have apostles around. But, you know, the problem is that those apostles don't do anything that the apostles of Jesus Christ did. Right. And of the rest, durst no man join himself to them. How big was the church at this time? How many? We had 120. How many were converted on the day of Pentecost? 3,000. How many were converted later? 5,000 men. We had a huge church, but none of them thought to presume on claiming to be an apostle. And of the rest, durst no man join himself to them. Our context here is not believers. Our context is apostolic signs and wonders and power. And of the rest of the believers, no one tried to be like those apostles. They had the chief gift in the church and they did not try to join them. But the people magnified them. See, if it's not the apostles we're talking about, then it has to be the believers. And then you would have to make the last part of that verse mean that the unbelievers magnified the believers. That doesn't make a bit of sense. The believers magnified the apostles. Those 12 men were elevated out of the congregation as being having significant gifts by God and being exceptional men chosen by him for a special job. And that was the purpose. That's why we have Luke documenting Ananias and Sapphira for our learning, to check our hearts at all times, but also to show the power that Peter and the apostles had, the discernment of spirits, to read your mind, to raise the sick, to cause the living to die. The people magnified them. 
Well, now, what's been ha what happened in chapter 4? These apostles were preaching in the name of Jesus Christ that he had risen from the dead, and they were hauled before the Jewish council and told, you may not preach in that name anymore. We don't like anyone preaching doctrine contrary to what we approve. And we don't like the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And though a man had been healed in chapter 3 and 4, who for over 40 years had laid lame at the beautiful gate of the temple, and he was there bouncing around in court, those Jewish leaders would still not give the apostles any credibility, but commanded them not to teach or preach in the name of Jesus Christ. And here we are in chapter 5, they're at work again. They're doing all these signs and wonders. And we read in verse 17, And the high priest rose up, and all they that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation, and laid their hands on the apostles and put them in the common prison. The Jewish leadership was indignant for a couple of reasons. One, they couldn't perform miracles, and the apostles were. Two, they had told them they weren't supposed to preach, and they were preaching anyway. And these Jewish leaders were used to being heard. As you're going to find out real shortly, if they make a decision to beat someone, they beat them. If they want to put someone in prison, they put them in prison. They had authority and power, and they were used to being honored and believed. But here these apostles were just disregarding them. In chapter 4, they'd been commanded not to teach or preach in the name of Jesus. And they had said, well, whether it be right or not in the sight of God to hearken unto you, judge ye. Right. And they just went out and preached anyway. Because they knew that their mandate was from God and that no man was going to stand between them and obeying their Lord. Amen. Which is something we should always remember. I don't care if you're a child or a wife or an employee or a citizen or a church member. When you are told to do something contrary to God's word, it is time for you to obey God and not to obey man. There is no sphere of authority in this world that is higher than God's. And you know that I, that I love authority and that I preach authority from the word of God. But if I were to ever teach this congregation to do something that is wrong, you should defy me on the authority of the word of God. If children are ever told by their parents to do something that is wrong, they should defy their parents and do what is right. Amen. If you want to get baptized and your parents don't want you to be baptized, you should be baptized anyway. If you're a wife and you know that you ought to assemble with the saints of God and your husband doesn't want to let you assemble, assemble anyway. These issues are not difficult. We ought to obey God rather than men. Amen. And the apostles did that. I believe in authority. But do you know which authority I believe in the most? The Lord's authority. And all other authority is simply derived from Him. Therefore, He can always set it aside, and He has through numerous examples in the Bible. If our government ever tells us that we cannot worship God, we're going to go right on worshiping Him anyway. Whatever we have to do, wherever we have to hide, we are going to get together and assemble. It doesn't matter that now we have cassette tapes that we can listen to with earphones under our beds because the government does, doesn't want us to assemble. Do you know what we're going to do? We're going to assemble. And if you're tempted to be afraid to assemble because you've got cassettes at home, we'll stop using cassettes because we're going to assemble. And the Lord will protect us. And we could develop that subject a whole lot further, but we've done that at other times and other places. And I hope that you remember that, but I want to remind you that when there is never any competition with God, Amen. don't even think about it. If God wants you to do something and someone tries to hinder you, obey God and do it. If God has told you not to do something and someone in authority is trying to get you to do it, don't you dare do it. You remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Amen. Nebuchadnezzar was a great king with authority we've never seen or can imagine. Remember what he could do to you if he didn't like you? If you sneezed in court, what he would do to you and your house and what it would look like in the middle of a subdivision? Nebuchadnezzar told them to bow down before his golden image. And those three men said, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter. I love that. We are not worried about what we're about to say to you. If God doesn't deliver us, we don't really care. 
If God doesn't deliver us from your fiery furnace, that doesn't matter very much to us because we are not going to bow down and worship your golden image. But I want to tell you, when you take an attitude like that, they were thrown into that fire, and the fire came out of the door of that furnace and burned up the men that threw them on their way. But in the midst of that fire appeared a fourth man likened to the Son of God, according to Nebuchadnezzar. And there they were, preserved by God's angel. They didn't even have the smell of smoke on their clothing or their hair, and nothing was singed on their bodies, and they walked out of that furnace. Because God did deliver them. But whether he delivers or not, we obey God rather than men. And so we have the apostles in the city of Jerusalem converting great numbers. And so the high priest and they that were with him, all the Sadducees, threw them into the common prison. Didn't even treat them as special criminals, but put them in the common prison. But brethren, they were obeying the Lord. So what happened? And I want you to see this is called the Acts of the Apostles. Here's another one of their Acts. But the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth and said, Go home and obey the civil authorities. Go, stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. There's God's blessing upon these apostles. Healing the sick... Raising the dead, killing the living, discerning spirits, knowing the thoughts of your heart. Put in prison, they walk right out. The Lord was magnifying these men. Weren't there other men that could have preached as well? This is the Acts of the Apostles. God had chosen 12 men to be exceptional by his gifts of the Holy Ghost. They weren't exceptional in themselves. You go read the, the lives of the apostles in the Gospels. Peter wasn't, Peter was quite an impulsive man. Got himself into trouble numerous times by being too impulsive. But the Holy Ghost was upon these men. And they weren't going to be allowed to waste any time in prison. You know, they, they didn't write any books how I spent 20 years in a Jewish prison. These are, these are men totally different from any other minister you've ever read about. They were put in the prison, and they walked right out. And they walked right out with a reminder of their duty. Go and preach all the words of this life. And do you know what most of those words were? Jesus Christ is king, he's risen from the dead, and he's coming back to destroy the Jewish leadership and their city and their temple and their nation. That was not a politically correct message for the Jews. But that's what they preached, all the words of this life. That reminder from the angel of the Lord, they entered into the temple. Well, now, why didn't they go down the street and preach someplace where they might not have been? To st- they went right back to the temple. Because the power of God was upon them, and they were going to be delivered no matter what happened. Amen. They entered into the temple early in the morning. Do you love that? Amen. They didn't wait till noon. They weren't sitting around, are you sure that's what the Lord wants us to do? We could get killed. Early in the morning, they're back in the temple and taught. But the high priest came, and they that were with him, and called the council together, and all the senate of the children of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came and found them not in the prison, they returned and told, saying, The prison truly found we shut with all safety, and the keepers standing without before the doors. But when we had opened, we found no man within. Now, isn't that amazing? The chief priests and the, the, the high priest and the Sadducees with him sent to haul these apostles out to where they could put them on trial again. They went to the prison. They found it all shut up secure with the guards standing outside it, and they had never been disturbed. So the guards knew that the prisoners had to be inside. But when they finally got through all the gates, doors, and chains, they found the place empty. The apostles weren't there. Because the angel of the Lord had brought them out and commanded them to preach. Now when the high priest and the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these things, they doubted of them whereunto this would grow. Oh no! If this gets out among the people that we can't even keep them in prison... What's that going to do to their reputation? 
They're already gaining in popularity so rapidly. Now they walk right out of our prisons. But brethren, do you know what's really interesting about that verse? That's not there, but you got to look beneath the surface a little bit. Amen. Why in the world didn't they say, God must be with these men? Amen. Why in the world didn't they say, wait a minute. They just walked out of the prison and it was all secure? Remember, they did heal that lame man that was lame for over 40 years. Why wasn't there in the Jewish leadership any recognition of the work of God? Because God had blinded their eyes, stopped up their ears, and hardened their hearts so that they would not see, they would not understand, they would not be converted, and He would heal them. That is John chapter 12, verses 37 to 41. And about five other places in the Bible. Because it is such a work that God did on the nation of Israel. He blinded them. I told you about Pharaoh. You know, what would drive Pharaoh to take his troops and chariots down into the Red Sea after ten plagues? A hardened heart. But what would cause these Jews to ignore the lame man that was standing there flexing in the trial in chapter 4, and in chapter 5, that the apostles had walked out of prison. Brethren, the Lord God hardens hearts, and the Lord God opens hearts. Amen. We're going to get to chapter 16 and verse 14, where it says that God opened the heart of Lydia, so that she attended unto the things spoken by Paul. Now, I believe in the absolute sovereignty of God, and that if he wants to, if he leaves me alone, my heart will never see anything of him. I will not seek after him. I will not understand him. I will hate him and choose sin. It is only by grace that he ever gives me a desire toward him. But if the Lord doesn't open those hearts, men, educated men, men that knew the Old Testament thoroughly, did not see that God was with the apostles. And therefore, we must always humble ourselves before Him and realize that if we see anything, it is by the grace of God. And that if we want to see more, we need to pray for it. And if we want someone to see the truth, it is not by might, nor by power, nor by persuasive arguments, nor by eloquence, nor by the number of outlines you give them. It is the work of God to open a heart. Amen. And therefore, all the glory is His. Right. Every bit of it bit. is His. Verse 25, then came one and told them, that is, the senate of the house of Israel, saying, Behold, the men whom ye put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. They didn't go and hide. Wouldn't that bother you too? That some men would have so much courage that instead of running and hiding after they escaped from prison, they went right back to the temple where they'd been apprehended in the first place and took right up teaching again. These dumb, ignorant fishermen are right back in the temple preaching again. Then went the captain with the officers and brought them gently, without violence. For they feared the people, lest they should have been stoned. Now these Jews, you've got to feel a little tiny bit sorry for them, just a little tiny bit. These apostles were gaining in popularity so much, and when you're trying to keep a religion that's popular, you don't like an opposing sect that's gaining so fast in popularity. And so they came and they brought them gently, because if they would have dragged them out of there with violence, they were afraid of being stoned by the people, because the people loved the apostles and were magnifying them because of the mighty works they were doing. If you had some sick relatives that were very sick, bedridden, and the apostles had healed them, would you be kind of loyal toward the apostles? And you wouldn't have taken it kindly to see the chief priests dragging your apostles around. Verse 27. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did not we straightly command you that ye should not teach in this name? And behold, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and intend to bring this man's blood upon us. He asked them a question, didn't we tell you not to preach in this name? Well, yes, they had. 
but the apostles went and preached in that name anyway. And then I love this expression. Here's the Jews having to admit, ye have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. And what was their doctrine? That Jesus Christ is not dead. He's been raised from the dead and exalted at God's right hand, and he is king. And intend to bring this man's blood upon us. What's wrong with these Jews? Weren't these the same ones that cried out just a few days earlier? Crucify him! Crucify him! Let his blood be upon us and on our children. Didn't they say that? Well, now why are they afraid of that blood? Is God able to give a man fear and blind him? Yes, indeed. They were starting to wonder themselves, but they wouldn't humble themselves. They didn't want that man's blood upon them. Why? They had just a few days earlier said they didn't mind at all if his blood was upon them and upon their children. Then Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. And there's the summary statement of what we always ought to do when authority dictates something that God has not taught us. If authority tells us to do something, and God says we should not do that, we don't do it. If God has commanded us to do something and authority says, I'm not going to let you do that, we do it anyway. Because we ought to obey God rather than men. And now Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, has a few words to say to them. The God of our fathers, and notice his wisdom in saying the God of our fathers, he shows himself to be a Jew as he addresses the Jewish council, and it is the God of our fathers. It is the God of Israel. It's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Our God. Our God that knew only one nation upon all the earth, the nation of Israel. Our God raised up Jesus, whom ye slew and hanged on a tree. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, for to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses of these things, and so is also the Holy Ghost, whom God hath given to them that obey him. Now that's short and sweet. Not very sweet. If you'll notice what what Peter says to these Jews. He says, that Jesus that you slew and hanged on a tree, God's raised him up. And not only has God raised him up, God's made him a prince and a savior, and he's the means that we have for the forgiveness of sins. And not only that, we're witnesses of the fact. And not only are we witnesses, the Holy Ghost is a witness. But I guess you wouldn't know much about the Holy Ghost, because the only ones that have the Holy Ghost are those that obey him. Now, is that how you win friends and influence people? Would Dale Carnegie have a chapter in his book on how to win friends and influence people from Acts chapter 5 on Peter's short little words to the Jewish leadership? Not on your life. He accuses them of hanging Jesus on a tree. He tells them that Jesus is now a prince, and we're witnesses of it. You aren't. And the Holy Ghost is also a witness which those that obey have with them. The implication being, you Jews do not have the Holy Ghost. Now this was the Jewish leadership, the high priest, the chief priest, the sect of the Sadducees, the captain of the temple, all of them are standing there. The Senate of the House of Israel, the council, has been called together, and Peter says of them, you do not have the Holy Ghost. Now they knew what the Holy Spirit was, and not from the teachings of Jesus. They knew it from the Old Testament where the Holy Spirit would come upon men from time to time, and the Spirit of God would come upon a man like a Samson or a David or a Saul and give them the ability to do something great for the Lord. They knew about that Spirit. But here the apostles, the fishermen, are telling the Jewish religious leadership, you don't have the Holy Spirit. When they heard that, they were cut to the heart and took counsel to slay them. Now, Peter did not soft-sell the gospel. He did not mince words. He laid it on them. You crucified and killed the Lord Jesus Christ. You hung him on a tree, and he is the prince and savior of Israel, the one prophesied that would give us the forgiveness of sins, and the Holy Ghost is bearing witness with us that he is indeed the Son of God, but you wouldn't know much about that. 
because the Holy Ghost is given to those that obey Him. And that cut them to the heart. Remember, we've seen this before, didn't we? On the day of Pentecost, when Peter preached a similar message, similar words, it says they were pricked in the heart. Men where God has given them a soft heart are pricked by the preaching of the gospel, and they respond by saying, Men and brethren, what shall we do? But when God has left a heart cold, they are cut to the heart, because what it brings out of them is anger instead of submission and a desire to obey. And so these Jews immediately want to kill the apostles. What would make a man so wicked that he would want to kill the apostles for simply saying, we are witnesses that Jesus is alive? Because when God hardens a heart, there is no natural reasoning. There was no natural, there's no reasoning. There was no reasoning with Pharaoh. There's no reasoning with these Jews. They wanted to kill the apostles. Now, there was a Pharisee there, and he was in the minority. But he was a well-known Pharisee with a great reputation. His name was Gamaliel. He was the personal teacher of the Apostle Paul before his conversion. We're going to learn that in Acts chapter 22 when we get that far. Then stood there up one in the council, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a doctor of the law, had in reputation among all the people, and commanded to put the apostles forth a little space. They went into a private cabinet meeting. And this Gamaliel says unto the council, Ye men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what ye intend to do as touching these men. And then he gives two examples of other sects that arose that quickly fell apart when their leaders died. For before these days rose up Thutis, boasting himself to be somebody, to whom a number of men, about 400, joined themselves, who was slain, and all, as many as obeyed him, were scattered and brought to naught. There was a man who got about 400 followers, but when he died, those 400 disappeared and it didn't amount to anything. It didn't threaten our religion, it didn't threaten our positions, and it didn't threaten our 401k plans and our retirement. After this man rose up Judas of Galilee in the days of the taxing and drew away much people after him, he also perished, and all, even as many as obeyed him, were dispersed. Now there's another account that Jesus Christ gives over in the Gospel of Luke that Luke recorded about an uprising of the Galileans that Pilate slew with their sacrifices so that the blood of the Galileans was running with the blood of their sacrifices. And that very possibly was the event that Luke here is reminding us again of, of Judas of Galilee, because it was Galileans that Pilate slew with their sacrifices for a tax revolt. Now that's how they handled those who didn't pay taxes in the days of the Roman Empire. Just kill them. Take everything they've got. And this is Gamaliel reasoning with them. He's reasoning, listen, we've had men arise before and and get followers, but when those men died, their whole religious effort fell away and there was nothing left, and it didn't do us any harm. So let's be cautious about what we're going to do to these apostles. And now I say unto you, refrain from these men and let them alone. For if this counsel or this work be of men, it will come to naught. But if it be of God, Ye cannot overthrow it, lest haply ye be found even to fight against God. Now that's great wisdom. Now where did that great wisdom come from? It came from the Lord, but it could have come two different ways. One, God was going to deliver his apostles, and so he gave Gamaliel, who had a great reputation, the words to say so that the apostles would be freed. But there's another way that it could have come that Gamaliel was a believer. Because I read in John chapter 12 that many of the Pharisees believed on him, but they were afraid to confess him openly because they knew they would lose their place in the synagogues and temple. And so God used one of his men. We don't know. All we know is that God used Gamaliel to free the apostles. They weren't killed. 
This is just as much the act of God as opening prison doors at night and letting them walk forth. Because it's all under the government of God. Why were men who were cut to the heart and wanted to slay them so easily moved just to discipline and let them go? They didn't even keep them in prison. Because God's purpose was for them to be preaching later that day. And to him they agreed, verse 40. Right there is the sovereignty of God. I hope that when you read your Bibles, you see the sovereignty of God everywhere. And to him they agreed. He was a Pharisee. He was in the minority, and he was not recommending what they all wanted to do. The majority were Sadducees, and they wanted to kill the apostles. And to him they agreed. And when they had called the apostles, remember they were in a side room, and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. A Jewish beating was to lay on your stomach in front of the judge, and you would be beaten with a rod on your back up to the count of 40, and the judge would count how many times you were smitten. You can go read it in Deuteronomy chapter 25. So those apostles were laid down, and they were beaten according to the commandment of Moses. And they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. If we suffer a beating or shame or imprisonment or fines or government action against us because we're evildoers, that's horrible. But if we were to suffer imprisonment or beating or fines or government action against us because of his name, we ought to rejoice. Jesus had told those apostles earlier that when they haul you before councils and when they beat you and scourge you in their synagogues, rejoice, for great is your reward in heaven. That's how we tie ourselves in to a heavenly reward is suffering for him now. Because the Bible says if we suffer with him, we shall also reign with him. Second Timothy chapter two and verse twelve. Holding your hand there, just I want to look I want you to look back at Isaiah sixty six and see an interesting prophecy about persecution like this. One verse. Isaiah sixty six and verse five. Do you know what the Jewish council said as they beat the apostles? And do you know what would what, what could cause you to doubt whether you were the Lord's or not? When those apostles were beaten, the Jewish council said, let the Lord be glorified. Do you know how hard it would be to be beaten by those that had been for 2,000 years the representatives of God? Yes. And to hold fast your faith that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the Son of God, Though the temple worship, which was God's, though the capital city of Jerusalem, which was God's, though those priests, which were ordained of God, were beating you, and as they were beating you, they believed with their whole hearts that they were serving God, and they said, let the Lord be glorified. Look at this prophecy. Isaiah 66, verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord, ye that tremble at his word. Your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for my name's sake, said, Let the Lord be glorified, but he shall appear to your glory, and they shall be ashamed. Amen and amen. Amen. That Jewish leadership condemned the apostles in the name of the Lord. Do you know how hard that would be to take? And cast them out for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. But... The Lord Jesus Christ appeared to their glory and to the shame of those Jews. Because in 70 AD, that city was wiped from the face of the earth by the judgment of God upon them. And the apostles were enabled to go out and preach rather quickly. Because I read in verse 42, And daily in the temple and in every house, they ceased not to teach and preach Jesus Christ. Jesus came to their rescue and to their glory, but he came to the shame of those Jews. I hope that as we look in the book of Acts, 
we see the sovereignty of God blessing his apostles to establish the church of Jesus Christ. And we're part of that today. We are one of those little congregations that descend from the work of the apostles, what they did in the book of Acts, and then ordaining other preachers to go and ordain other preachers to go and ordain other preachers. And there we are today, 2,000 years later, as a result of God's blessing upon the apostles. But brethren, it's a holy God that we read about here because that holy God will appear to our glory and will appear to their shame. And I hope that we will humble ourselves before him and pray that our hearts will be united, that there'll be no Ananiases or Sapphiras amongst us, but that our hearts will be united to fear his name and that we will serve the Lord Jesus Christ. He will appear to our glory because he's going to appear one of these days to take us to be with him forever. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.